As many of you know already, or those of you who have been here long enough, summer, summer in OIC and also International Church has become quite a special time for me uh, in terms of my role as a preacher. Uh, I have been the pastor at OIC for, for many years now, and we have a tradition of using the summers for hearing from the Psalms and preaching from the Psalms. And that means that I get to preach from the Psalms every summer, which I actually love. And more and more throughout my life, I have come to appreciate and use the Psalms more and more. But the Psalms are also a bit tricky because you never know what may be coming your way when you go into the book of Psalms. And after a while, you have preached about all of those well-known psalms that everybody knows, you know, that grandma has sort of put into their decorations. We've gone through all of those, right? And then you also, as a preacher, has, have gone through the less known ones that you personally are fond of. And maybe if you have been a Christian for a while and have spent time with the book of Psalms, you have a few of those. But at one point, you're done with that. And then you have to start getting into all of the other psalms. There's 150 of them in this collection of songs and chants and poetry and prayers that we have come to call the book of psalms in the scriptures. And also in OIC, we make a point of digging into the, uh, the full wealth of, of the Psalter, as we also call this, this collection of psalms. And there's a lot in there. There's a lot, a lot of different things. So once I decide on a psalm for a Sunday, I try and stick with it. And I try to stick with it even when I feel tempted to pick another psalm sometime throughout the process because this particular psalm is giving me too much trouble. And I didn't want to avoid and we don't want to avoid the difficult or uncomfortable part of scriptures. We want to deal with them. We want to try to figure out what that means. So if you know the Psalms, at this point you may be thinking, oh man, there comes, you know, there comes one of those vengeance Psalms. Or one of those graphic Psalms that honestly have more blood than a Tarantino movie if you go into them. Some of them are just plain uncomfortable. So here comes one of those. But not really. Not today. Uh, the Psalm I want to share with you today is actually a very joyful Psalm. And I sat on Psalm 150, which is the last psalm in the Psalter. The one that through ages and centuries of what we could call editorial work, it became the closure for the whole book of the Psalms. Somebody organized, right? These Psalms came out through history. If you look at old scriptures of the Psalms, they're in all different sorts of orders. But throughout ages of sort of, and centuries of what we could call editorial work, it landed in this position. And Psalm 150 became the closure for the whole book of Psalms. And I want to read it with you right now. Psalm 150. And it says, Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. 
Praise him for his acts of power. Praise him for his surpassing greatness. Praise him with the sound of the trumpet. Praise him with the harp and the lyre. Praise him with timbrel and dancing. Praise him with the strings and pipe. Praise him with the clash of cymbals. Praise him with resounding cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Now, that's a beautiful psalm, right? It's a beautiful psalm, a glorious and actually quite cheerful psalm. And it has this sort of this strength and power to it that goes upwards. It's like an uplifting song of some sort. Or as if you suddenly walked into a party with an awesome live music and smiling people. But I wasn't comfortable with it. I wasn't comfortable with it. I kept struggling with this psalm. And I was very uneasy of preaching about this particular psalm today. So I was trying to put my finger on why it bothered me so much. I mean, it's a happy song, isn't it? What's the problem? And then I realized that was just it. That was the problem. I missed the drama. I missed the pain. I miss the struggling with God's silence. I miss the indignation with injustice. I miss the spelling out of that sense of abandonment in regards to God. I miss the cry for help because things are tough and are not okay. All those things that fill so many of the other Psalms in the Psalter. And here, there was only praise and joy, and I felt awkward. It's like I walked into the party, but I felt at odds with it. Like I came home with a headache, and all I want is my pajamas and a warm tea, and suddenly there's a surprise party with loud music thumping my brain. Or maybe as if if I had gone out for a night, celebration with friends and suddenly someone picked up a gun and started shooting. Too many days seem like days for songs of sorrow, not songs of joy. Days for songs of mourning. So I miss the pain in the psalm. Because pain is present. It's present in the day. It's present today. And the idea that I would stand here in a religious space and preach from a psalm of joy less than 48 hours after someone who was very likely driven or in the least influenced by a fundamental religious agenda picked up a gun and started shooting at people, people whose joy he arguably deemed offensive, that did not sit well with me. But then my struggle 
with Psalm 150, it led me to an epiphany of sorts. An epiphany of how I could read it again and why I think it actually makes sense to preach about it and even to speak it out loud. Because that's the thing with the Psalms, isn't it? They're not just information. (laughs) They're not just story for us to hear. They invite us as prayers, as chants, as songs that were, under vast majority, composed thought for the worship of the community. They invite us to speak them, to say that out, them out loud. They're a voice, they're a word from God to us, but they're also an invitation for us to speak to God through them. So what does it mean to put them in our lips? And here's the epiphany. It's a realization that this is Psalm 150. That's obvious, right? It's just like, that's just a number on the psalm that some editor at some point in history added to it. But what I mean is that there are 149 psalms before it. And I do not have to, and in fact, I should not read this psalm as if it was isolated from all of those other 149 psalms and all the unsung and unwritten psalms. The fullness of the tradition in the Psalter and in the life of worship, there's a whole lot of life. There's a whole lot of real life with sorrow and joy and laughter and blood and anger, and relief, and forgiveness, and despair, and hope, a whole lot of actual lived life that is preceding this psalm and is in fact surrounding this psalm and is pouring into it. Or to say this another way, Psalm 150, I do not believe because of the tradition it's immersed in, that it ignores the lived life around it. I think Psalm 150 embraces all that comes before and around it in the Psalter and in the reality of life. So this is not an inconvenient surprise party, (laughs) but this is more like a celebratory act of hopeful defiance a celebratory act of hopeful defiance. Now, this is surely a celebration, but perhaps it's more helpful to think of it like a festival, a festival to which you come willingly and a festival to which you bring something. Now, what I have in mind here, or I'm not thinking about, oh yeah, festival, (laughs) I'm thinking about the festivals of ancient Israel, or at least the the idea of them and how they're talked about and weaved into the narrative of the scriptures. And this is what what was the, the notion with the festivals of ancient Israel. People would come to Jerusalem from across the land, from all of Judea and Galilee and all the surrounding areas. They would come to Jerusalem and they would come to celebrate. Festivals were days of celebration. But at the same time, they would come as an exercise of 
remaining God's people, and they would come to be forgiven. They would bring sacrifices and they would bring gifts to the temple. And these gifts and these sacrifices, these animals to be sacrificed, they were to be both a recognition of sin, a plea for forgiveness, lives of animals being taken because sin brings death, and the reality of death and sin being displayed ritually before and among them. But they were also, and this is something sometimes we forget or just don't know about, they were also the stuff of their shared meals in those days. This was death that feeds and brings life and fellowship. Most of the sacrifices in the, in the celebrations and the festivals of ancient Israel, they were not the, the kind we often think about or if you grew up and heard about Holocaust when you burned the whole thing. Most of them were meals that were eaten by the people in the context of their celebration, of their belonging to each other and to God and their identity. Death that feeds and brings life and fellowship. And in those festivals, they would praise and they would sing and they would dance with trumpets and with harps and with lyres and with cymbals. And in those festivals, many of these psalms that now are part of our psalter were used in songs, in chanting, in singing, in pilgrimage. That was the big place of all of this that the psalm celebrates and speaks of. So I came to see this psalm as a song of praise that is rooted in the tradition of the psalter and in the worship of the one God. Not as an evasive sort of prayer, which invites you to withdraw from life and sing like there's no yesterday and no tomorrow, or like the pain of the world around you does not concern you because you are in this sort of weird holy bubble. No, this is worship that is rooted in life that embraces life with all its idiosyncrasies, with all that does not make sense, with all its ambiguities, and embraces it into an act of hopeful praise. And there's a key sentence and a key word in Psalm 150 that does this, this sort of anchoring for me. Anchoring the psalm in the fullness of the story of Revelation, and in the reality of life. And the, the phrase is, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. That's the sentence, and the word is breath. Breath. It is used in a way that brings us back to the very beginning of time. When God first speaks the world into existence. And the word that is used there and the way it is used in its original language brings us immediately back to the poetry and the narrative of Genesis, of the beginning of time when God first speaks the world into existence and then he breathes life into humankind. And that powerful image of Genesis 2, right, he breathed life 
into their nostrils is echoed there. It's a very powerful, strong, very, very image. Everything that has life, everything that has been created by God in this personal, close, self-giving way, everything that has breath, bring praise. Use that breath to bring praise. It's also a realization that their very breath brings praise to the one whose breath wills creation into being. We are surrounded and immersed, though, in a reality that both sings, but also gasps for air. We experience on our own selves and in our own bodies and in the societies and communities that we are a part of, the families, the workplaces, the cultures, we experience how the lungs of our broken humanity struggle to breathe healthily of this God-giving breath of goodness. And how we in coughs and spasms even choke life and breath out of the lives and bodies of our brothers and sisters. So we struggle. How can that kind of emptied out life, that life stolen from the goodness and grace of the God-given breath, how can it praise the Lord? Yet the Psalms themselves, if we look at all the wealth of the tradition of the Psalms and the Psalter, the Psalms themselves are a witness to the resilience of hope and of God's spirit in breathing life in the middle of the realities of death in the world. And if you read through the Psalms, so many of them are Psalms of struggle, or Psalms of abandonment, or Psalms of sorrow that still insist in ending in praise. And there is also wonderful and powerful use of that same expression in a key point in scriptures for us as Christians. And I want to open in the gospel according to St. John, chapter 20. I'm going to read from verse 19 to 23 over there, where John tells us this. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. He breathed on them. 
the same God who breathed life into us in the beginning breathes life into us anew. And this, this Jesus breathing life is a Jesus familiar with our pains and with our sorrows and with our hopes and with our fears. This is a God who does not demand our praise from a distance, but a God who walks with us, breathing into us when we're choking ourselves. A God with scars of violence in his very own body. Hands that are pierced, side that is pierced, feet that knows the feel of the dust of the roads of Galilee, back that knows the strength of the Roman whip. A Christ who knows us in our humanity. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Breathing into us. With this image of the breathing incarnate Christ, I find that I can sing the psalm. With this breath that is not just given, but continues to be given and be with us. And with this image, I can sing on the day of the festival, and I can sing on the day of sorrow. Because if there is something that the Psalms teach us in their multiplicity and their complexity and their diversity is that today is the day of praise. Today is the day of prayer. Today is the day of expression. And the difference may be that the praise of today is lifted by hope, defiant hope so many times. And the praise of tomorrow may be lifted by thankfulness. But the day in which we praise is always today. There is not in our experience of life a day of praise away from brokenness. And neither does the praise of Christ invite us into that. Not yet. Not today. So the question is, can we praise God in that way? A worship that is rooted in life and that is not evasive. A worship that can pour out our souls and sometimes even our doubts and yet always say, I will praise God. With whatever I have at hand or at heart, I will praise God. As long as I have breath and the breath of Christ, I will have forever. I will praise the Lord. And what does it mean then for us together sing, let everything that has breath 
praise the Lord? How does our praise, how does our worship lead us to be people of healing, to be people of reconciliation, to be people who work against the choking forces of the world? Try to create spaces of breathing the presence of the incarnate Christ. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you that you may know that he is gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards each and every one of you into the reality of your lives, into your days of sorrow, and your days of joy, that he may bring you peace. So go in the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ and serve the Lord and serve the world and serve each other joyfully. Amen.